call, God's call to Abram is indeed a call to trust God and obey, to have faith in God's purposes. God calls Abram to leave everything that is secure and comfortable and familiar because he has great purposes for Abram and Abram's progeny, his descendants. Out of all the people in the world, God chose this one man, Abram, this pagan, moon-worshipping man, to initiate a covenant with. A covenant that would transform the world. Indeed, we are all benefactors of this covenant. Everyone who is in Christ is a benefactor of this covenant. And so as we saw Last week, when God calls Abraham, makes covenant with him, he lavishes him with this overwhelming flood of generosity and blessing, offering seven magnificent promises to Abram. One, I will make you a great nation. Two, I will bless you. Three, I will make your name great. Four, you will be a blessing. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And seven, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Awesome promises made in this covenant to Abram. As we will see today, God does not make covenant with Abram because he is this incredible man of faith or because he is somehow more righteous than everybody else. (laughs) Not at all. If it were not for God's calling, his effectual calling, and his working in Abram's heart, This guy would have been just another moon-worshipping pagan, lost to the darkness of Ur like so many of the other Sumerians. But out of that darkness of paganism, God kindles the fires of faith in Abram's heart. Even if that faith is hesitant and slow at first, even if that faith messes up again and again and misses his opportunities, eventually, Abram obeys God, following this calling, makes his way all the way to the land of Canaan, to Shechem. And in Shechem, as Abram stands by the oak of Morah, the site of pagan worship, God tells Abram that the land he sees is his. He finally reveals the land that Abram was to go to, that his descendants will possess and buy this idolatrous tree Abram builds an altar, and he worships God. Afterwards, Abram, we saw last week, he travels south. He goes, um, he camps between Bethel and Ai, and he, he builds an altar there. He worships God, and then he just keeps on going further south into the Negev, or the Negev, which is a desert wilderness that straddles the Promised Land and the Sinai Peninsula. There's not much down there. And so we're going to see some things today that motivate Abram to keep moving south, to keep on traveling, forces that will drive him all the way to Egypt. And you will see that in this journey of faith, as he moves further south, it's going to take a surprising turn in Egypt, a very dark turn. So as we look at this passage today, where we are in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10, and we're going to follow that to chapter 13, verse 2. I want to unfold the events of Abram's wandering into Egypt. And we will see that God keeps covenant even when we do not. You could say God is faithful even while we are faithless. When we cannot, he does. 
We see all of these things in Abram's journey down into Egypt. And like I said, it's going to take a dark turn, and it's not going to be for the last time in Abram's journey. This trip to Egypt, uh, it is a wayward trip. Let's read about it now. Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that they had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom today as we consider these words, that you would speak to us by your spirit, and that by your word we would be encouraged and strengthened and know in the depths of our being that even when we fail, you do not. And when we wander, you bring us back. Your love for us is so great, so great that you laid down the life of your own son, that we could be forgiven and have entrance back into all that we squandered. We thank you for the great gifts that you have given to us and let us see them and feast upon them today in your word. We do not live on bread alone, but by your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Abram's in Shechem, in the heart of the promised land. God tells him, all that you see, everything surrounding you, that is your land, that is the land of your descendants, all of this is yours. So why doesn't Abram begin taking it? Why doesn't he build a house? Why doesn't he start treating this land like it's his land? It was his. God said it was his. If God says something, is there anything else in all creation that can undo it? There are two reasons. Two reasons that Abram doesn't do this. Two two reasons that he keeps on moving. And one is very obvious from our text, and the other one is not so obvious. It will become more obvious in later, later chapters. But the first reason... The reason that is not so obvious as to why Abram keeps on moving is that the Canaanites lived in the land. Abram wasn't just shown this vacant landscape. There were people living there, and it was their land. 
And if Abraham were to try to take some for himself, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't go well for him. Imagine showing up at a ranch in Texas and saying, this bit's mine now. You probably wouldn't last that long. And it's likely if Abraham tried to do this in Canaan, he wouldn't survive the battle that would inevitably follow. You see, the Canaanite civilization, like all the civilizations at the time, were very different, different civilizations from the ones that we know and understand. I mean, it's a culture entirely foreign from even what we can imagine. These societies were governed by power, but in a way that's not like the power dynamics of today. The powerful had no problem to destroy you, to violate you, to enslave you. If you were weaker than them, lesser than them, they did not mind at all to show you that. Abraham knows that he's traveling through a minefield of these powerful, easily enraged, easily incited people. And so he has to be very careful around powerful people. That's why Abraham makes a lot of decisions that he's making in today's passage. It's one reason he doesn't stop long in one place, especially early on in this journey. It's going to be dangerous for him to do so. He keeps on moving. He came from the north, so logically he's going to keep on going south. The second more obvious reason that Abram moves south is because, as it says right there in chapter 12, verse 10, there's a severe famine in the land. Look, look at this verse. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, and the famine was severe in the land. I put myself in put myself in Abram's shoes here, and I'm like, did Amazon get the packages mixed up? The land God gives to Abram is a land abounding in dangerous people and dangerously lacking food. It's a real crisis of faith for him. You promise me this? I mean, it's great, but I can't even stay here. That's me imposing myself upon the text, to be sure. But I wonder if you've ever felt anything like this in your walk of faith. God's called you into something that sounded a lot better than it turns out to be. So it seems. There's more difficulty here than there was back in that old life. I was more comfortable, more secure, and this is hard, and this is painful, and this is scary, and I don't know what to do. We begin to miss those things that were predictable, that were comfortable. And guys, it was for Abram, so it is often for us. Only the eyes of faith can see this land for what it is becoming, rather than what it is. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Often this verse is thrown around in times of suffering. But it's not just a verse for suffering. It's a verse for every day. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. Faith is sight. Sight to see those eternal things, even while you're surrounded by the transient. 
And all of your hungers that you have, your appetite, seems so much more real. But faith looks beyond them. Past the things that afflict you, past the things that are going to pass away, and you do not lose heart. You rejoice in the eternal glories that God is refining within you and around you. The glories that will last for all eternity. So Abram experiences these fires of famine, these, this severe famine. The famine means starvation. I've been, I've been to Zambia and saw children with enormous bellies, but not because they were full, because they had no food, and they bloated. And when you see bellies like that, it might be a matter of days. Famine means starvation. Abram's life is at risk, and not just his own life, but everybody who's with him. His wife, Sarai, Lot, and Lot's family. And he has an unknown number of servants that have come with him. So he's responsible for a whole lot of people. So Abraham does what I think anybody would do. He takes all of them to a land that's not touched by this famine, a land where they're going to have plenty of food. He takes them to Egypt. This is the first mention of Egypt in the Bible. As I said last week, Abram's journey is going to establish patterns that will echo throughout Scripture. Abram's driven to Egypt by distress. Joseph, his great-grandson, is going to be taken to Egypt by injustice. Later, Joseph's father Jacob is going to be driven into Egypt by another famine. Moses is called to Egypt because of the distress of his people. Mary and Joseph, with little little Jesus, will be driven to Egypt because by the distress of a murderous king, Egypt. Abram traveled there around 1800 BC, Egypt's middle kingdom. In Abram's day, it was a rising superpower. Its strength was increasing and growing. The land was filled with very powerful people. And it was filled with food. So there is food in Egypt. But should, Egypt, should Abram have gone there? God made covenant with Abram. He promised to bless him. He promised to give him descendants. Additionally, Abram traveled hundreds of miles to this land, to the promised land, the land God promised to him, a land of blessing. So why does he need to go to a different land in order to survive? Wasn't Abram looking to the things that were seen rather than the things that were unseen, to the eternal things? Surely, if God made these promises, even in the midst of a famine, would he not provide? Maybe he would bring ravens out of the sky to drop bread for him. Or maybe bread like manna would actually fall and he would eat. We don't know. Because Abram went to Egypt. He had God's word. He had God's promises. But his hunger for bread was far greater. 
You know, Jesus went 40 days with no food. Have you ever tried that? Have you tried a week? Likely he did this in the Negev. If Christ wanted to, he could have looked at those rocks and he said, you're bread now. And he had plenty of bread, but he didn't. Despite the temptation to do so, even though he was starving, 40 days of no food, starving in his own personal famine, God's word was enough for the Son of God. And he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In all of Israel's history, only Jesus resists the temptations of the flesh perfectly. Abram's hunger won, and he went looking for bread. And he goes to Egypt. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. It's funny, but I feel like I've, I've done similar weaselly arguments like this in my life. Being 10 years younger than Abram, it's interesting to note that Sarai is 65 years old in this passage. She isn't exactly youthful. And yet Abram correctly recognizes that her, her beauty may very well inflame the lusts of powerful men. Again, Abram's world is quite different from our own. They lived in a time where powerful men got exactly what they wanted. You know, moving in, uh, traveling into Egypt, there's this series of checkpoints and fortresses that Abram and his clan would have to pass through and traverse. Abram knew that if some ruler were there, spotted his wife, and fancied her, she'd be taken. And he'd, if he was discovered to be her husband, he would be killed. It's not that far off. Think David and Bathsheba. He wanted a beautiful woman, and so he killed the husband. So Abram cooks up this idea knowing that the most effective lies are based on half-truths, because technically, Sarai is Abram's sister, half-sister. They share the same father, different mothers. Such an arrangement wasn't common in, in Abram's pagan world, a world very different from our own. And so if Abram's fears are realized, then no matter what, she's gone. She will be taken. So they can at least lie by omitting this inconvenient marriage business so that Abram's skin would be saved. Yeah, for your sake, Sarah. Sure. Abram's trying to save his own skin. As one commentator writes, better defiled than dead. Well, let's not forget, staying in Canaan likely meant that they would starve too. So he's between a rock and a hard place. Three times in Genesis, we're going to see the patriarchs commit the same deception. We see it here in chapter 20. We're going to see Abram and Sarai pull the same stunt again. In chapter 26, Abram's son Isaac is going to commit the same deception. Three times the sister-wife deception happens. But in this episode, there's some really interesting things to see. 
or not, Sarah, Sarai is silent. Her silence is deafening. In nearly every other passage in Genesis where Sarai plays a role, she's speaking, she's interacting, she's a person. But here she's quiet. She's bound by her love to her husband, the desperation of the situation. She, by her silence, appears to accept Abram's proposal, even if it means that she is going to suffer, potentially. She submits to the will of her husband. And I'm not saying anything about that is right. It's just what we're seeing here. Should not have Abram remembered the word of the Lord? God promised descendants. So he was not going to be killed. He was fearing for his life, but God promised that from him there would be many nations. So he should know he will not be killed. Not by the Egyptians, not by anyone else, because there are no descendants yet. Neither would God have jeopardized the woman who's going to birth the nations. Should not have Abram remembered the word of the Lord. But he was afraid. And though he had faith, it began to be choked by the cares of the world. He's not trusting God. And here we can see there's another silence in our passage. Just as Sarai is silent, so also is God silent. And he says nothing. Abram has wandered now out of the promised land. He is wavering in his marital commitments and he is departing from the word of the Lord. Just as Abraham, Abram feared, it came to pass, though I believe it was way more than what Abram was thinking it would become. Look at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So he was right. He understood the culture enough to know that Sarai's beauty would be noticed. But it wasn't just noticed by powerful men at the Egyptian border or or by some governor of a province. The news of Sarai goes to the princes in Pharaoh's court, and then to Pharaoh himself. And Abraham must be thinking, this is way more than I bargained for. This has gotten out of hand. You would think that Abraham and Sarai, they present this lie at the border when they're being asked who they are and what their business is. But once word gets to Pharaoh, the lie is way too big. Now, you cannot lie to the Pharaoh And so surely if they were exposed, they would face grave consequences. Look at verse 15 again. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This language is very intentional. Sarai is taken as if she is an object to be used, to be passed around, to be taken. They came to Egypt looking for bread, and it comes at the cost of their dignity. Abram has become a weak man. He is a liar. He is being faithless on a number of levels. And Sarai, I think you can see that it's going to take her a long time to recover from this. The woman is taken into Pharaoh's house. 
In other words, Sarai is brought into the royal harem among with the rest of Pharaoh's wives and concubines. And God remains silent. And God allows Abram to reap what he has sown. Verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram. And he had sheep. He, Pharaoh, dealt with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Something like a, a payment for Sarai. So Pharaoh is, is greatly rewarding Abram, the brother, giving livestock and servants, which are two markers of wealth in the ancient world. And during this particular time in world history, camels were absolutely lavish extravagances. This is really before t- camels were tamed and widely available. Only the elite of the elite had camels like this. So it's a sure sign that somebody is fabulously wealthy. It'd be like today. In in addition to somebody giving you loads of money, they're also giving you Lamborghinis and Bugattis. So according to Pharaoh's estimation, this is how much a beautiful woman costs to keep, to possess. Regardless of what Abram wants, regardless of Sarai wants, it's done. To defy the Pharaoh was to die. This is what the world looked like before the coming of the Judeo-Christian transformation. The strong dominated the weak, and there was no justice system to appeal to. There was no election to get somebody else into the office. There wasn't even a moral code that you could say, this is wrong. There was nothing. There was no recourse. They were helpless. Abram had food. But he didn't have his wife. Does that mean he didn't have the covenant? Sarai. And she loses everything. And God is silent. This is real poverty now. Verse 17. But the Lord. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you, not, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. But God, I love that. They blew everything, it would seem. But God, he intervenes, and he brings a plague or a disease upon Pharaoh's house because of Sarai. The Hebrew language here may indicate an affliction of the skin. There are a number of commentators, quite a lot of commentators, who see an STI implied here, a sexually transmitted infection. Whatever it was, verse 17 calls it a great plague. So even though God is silent, he is not inactive. 
He is working. As Abram's faith is faltering, God remains faithful to his own word. He is faithful because of what he has said, not because of what Abram has done. God promised. So him who dishonors Abram, God will curse. Though Pharaoh is being deceived, he is still responsible for his own wickedness, that he is objectifying, that he has these lustful greeds, so God curses Pharaoh by placing this plague upon him. And the text is skipping over details that we would want, I think, in the 21st century. It just breezes over things. But all of a sudden, Pharaoh knows that his affliction is because of Sarai and that Abram and Sarah have lied about the relationship. Here again, I think it would make sense if God has given Pharaoh an, an STI. It would reveal a direction for Pharaoh to go investigating the source of his affliction. And so likely Sarai is questioned. She gives up the lie. Abram's brought before the king. Now, when Abram approaches the king, imagine in the, the court of the king, he on his throne, and here comes Abram. Pharaoh has all the information he needs. He already knows. If he wanted to, he could have just killed this man and kept Sarah, and that was that. But instead... As if there is this force working behind the scenes, Pharaoh brings in Abram to interrogate him. And he asks him a series of three questions. And through these questions, even though God is silent, it's as if he's using the voice of Pharaoh to rebuke and shame Abram for what he has done. Pharaoh asks him these three questions, none of which are about gathering information. They all are expressions of the king's anger, his indignation. The questions are meant to rebuke Abram and shame him. And Abram makes no defense. His silence reveals his guilt. And take note, Sarah isn't blamed for anything here. Abram is the guilty party. Abram is the one who spawned the lie who is the covenant mediator. He is responsible both for his defiling of the marriage and for the curse that has come to Pharaoh. It's because of Abram. And though Pharaoh could have killed Abram, he expels him instead. He says, Abram, go. Get out of here. You are a curse to me. Be gone. Fast forward about 400 years. There's another Pharaoh suffering from plagues, who's had enough of the plagues and he tells the Hebrew people to go. Get out of here. And Hebrews will eventually wander into the Negev and they too will leave Egypt with newly acquired wealth. There's a pattern that's being established. Look at verse thir- uh, chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. From where they came, they return. Abram, having grown so rich now in livestock, silver, gold, servants, most of all, he leaves with his wife. He has his wife. He returns to the promised land with great wealth 
And in a number of ways, this trip down to Egypt has changed their lives forever. When they came to Egypt, all of them were listed together, just as a group. Abram went, and it's implied everybody with him also went. But now they leave. Notice how Lot is listed separately. And he's listed last. Seems to indicate a separation that's about to happen here in chapter 13, a falling out between Lot and Abram. And I wonder if the fractures began in Egypt. Again, throughout this whole account, God is silent. When life gets hard, Abram relies on his own wisdom. He abandons the word of God, walking himself right into silence. Do you know suffering where God is silent? Do you have questions you just want an answer for and God is silent? As Bruce Waltke writes, Abram pays the price. He loses God's voice, builds no altars, and brings no blessing on others. Instead of blessing, he brings a rebuke upon himself. Abram leaves the promised land and he wan- looking for food and he wanders outside of God's covenant blessings. And when God had every right to remove the covenant from Abram, for Abram's just blatant unfaithfulness, God does not. Even though Abram leaves, God does not. He is with Abram the entire time. He protects the lives of Abram's household despite the lies, despite the lusts of powerful men. When there were no human means to rescue Sarai from Pharaoh's grip, God makes a way. And even in spite of Abram's wandering off, God blesses Abram. Abram deserved curses, but instead he's getting blessings. Instead of curses, God gives him livestock and servants and silver and gold. He gives him meat back, even his wife. And we seem to have no problem allowing him to be defiled. Because God had every intention of fulfilling his promises through this family. He would not let his word fail. He will not let his promises be broken. God delivers Abram from Egypt and not just barely. He delivers Abram into an abundance of blessing, an overflowing, abounding blessing. Remember that. God delivers Abram and not just barely. How good is our God that despite the failings of man, he demonstrates his glories and his grace and his faithfulness. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and 3. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls is faithful. He will surely do it. How many times, brothers and sisters, have you wandered? Have you wondered? 
How many times have you been faithless, not believing in God's precious word? How many times have your hungers of your body driven you to far off places, far from God? Perhaps today, your Bible sits at home with a layer of dust on it, and you haven't really prayed for who knows how long. And meanwhile, you feast on the bread of Netflix and YouTube and Egypt's comforts. Your starving soul can only be satisfied by God, by the living word. Come back to him. Maybe through my words, God is calling you out of Egypt and back to the land of promise. So won't you come back to him and give up the bread of Egypt? And praise him for his patience. And praise him for his gentleness. And praise him for his love. And praise him that even though you have failed, he never will. And God demonstrates his unfailing faithfulness in the glory of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And this is the wonder of the new covenant in Christ. The wonder that we will celebrate today. God has taken what did not, what does not belong to you, what you had no share in, no part in, that you were not going to inherit. And he spills his own blood to give it to you. When Abram sought to be satisfied by Egypt's bread, Jesus could only be satisfied by God's word. When Abram was willing to let his bride be defiled so that he could save his own skin, Jesus laid down his life to purify his bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How Christ loves the church. Abram sacrificed his wife. Christ sacrifices himself. And he gave you everything that you might be rescued from the shame and the bondage of Egypt. And make no mistake, comfort and security land you in Egypt's harem. Where Abram failed, where you failed, Christ has not failed. And just when we deserve the curse, as Abram deserved the curse, we receive God's blessing. For, because, for, for Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, that's you now, if you are in Christ, and you did nothing to earn it. Now this isn't to say that we will not be lovingly disciplined or rebuked when we sin, when we wander off, but it is to say that nothing in all creation can separate from you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's children, offsprings of God, the heirs of the promise, and all the blessings of Abraham are yes in Jesus Christ. God will bless you, and he will make your name great, And you will be a blessing.
and you are free from shame and free from condemnation and free from the burdens of your very many failings. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified in him. What a heritage you have been given, brothers and sisters. Follow God the Spirit into a life of freedom and blessing in God's promises. Trust not in the things that are passing away, but in God and his eternal purposes. Trust and obey God because he has placed you today in the promised land. Father, help us to live like this. Let us learn from Abram and not wander off into Egypt, not sacrifice the things that should be so precious to us for momentary escapes. I love you with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And we are so weak to do this. But you are not. And in our weakness, you show yourself to be strong. Our refuge in a time of need. Our help that comes when there is no apparent help. Our freedom when we are racked by shame and guilt. Our light when all around us is dark. We do not live on bread alone, but by your every word. And we praise you that through your word, You have spoken into our hearts life. Satisfy our souls, Father. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.